This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Jerry, we find ourselves in the Ichiro room once again here inside Safeco Field. It is the Nelson Cruz episode, episode 23. How are things, Jerry? This is a nice homestand so far for your guys. Yeah, just a, this team continues to, to plow through it, you know. It hit a little bit of a snag there, but otherwise all is good in, in Marinerland. You know, I, I'm glad you bring that up because it was a bit of a snag. It was a two-game snag, right? I mean, it was funny because I was walking around uh, the – not the concourse, but the kind of the service level by the clubhouses yesterday. And I saw a security guard, and I just said hello. And he said, "I'm doing well. Could use a win tonight." <laughs> and I was like, "Could use a win tonight? They've lost two games. I mean, the that summer- does qualify as a streak." Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess, but uh, I think it does kind of put things in perspective when you zoom out a little bit. Yes, it was a snag of 48 hours. The Mariners split the series against the Rangers. We're recording this in advance of Friday night's game, the opener against the Tampa Bay Rays. But overall, this was a tremendous first two months of the season for the Mariners, Jerry. Yeah, if you would have told me that, you know, here on June 1st, this would be the position we were in, hugging first place in our division by a game, leading in the in the wild card. Really, what we've done as a, as a group, especially considering the situation with Robinson Cano, the way this group is, has kind of picked up and galvanized moving forward, and the quality of the pitching that we've, we've received over the course of these two months. I don't think too many would have predicted that in most areas would be among the four or five best teams in the American League in, in pitching. That, that has been you know, a very pleasant surprise. And, and we could talk about all the different individuals have contributed in that area and, and probably wouldn't have enough airtime to do it. Although I guess this is our show. This so is our show, Jerry. When's your next meeting? <laughs> <laughs> That's how much time we've got. Well, we will talk about that. We will specifically get into Wade LeBlanc. We're going to talk Nelson Cruz as well. And a little run differential conversation, too. Uh, but there's a roster move today for the Mariners, Jerry, and a, a fairly notable one. Mark Sipchinski has been designated for assignment, and a former Mariner is once again a current Mariner. Ronas Elias has been recalled from Tacoma. Can you tell us about the move? Yeah, obviously it's been a tough go over these last two months, and really dating back to last July or so for Zepp. And, and we had been kind of waiting for him to, to get on track, and it's so difficult for a left-on-left guy, which is what Zepp does. To, to find his, his groove when there aren't opportunities against left-hand hitters. and uh, It got to the point where it really wasn't uh, viable to put him in too many winning game situations. And how do you match him up in, in a game where you're not in a critical situation? So it had become increasingly more difficult. Obviously, he struggled through the course of the season, not just with the right-hand hitters, which has been more of a career trend, but recently with the lefties. And and ultimately, it put a little too much pressure on the rest of the bullpen, and that's why we determined it was time to make this move, is to is to give the, the other guys down in that bullpen someone who could protect them in a different way than just coming in and getting the, 
the big lefty. Tough decision, you know. Obviously, not something that is gonna is gonna reflect well uh, on my track record in, in free agency. But I know Zepp did what he could do, and and you know he had an excellent first half of his first year with us. Struggled. Uh, I would be a hypocrite if I said I have not had those moments myself in my own career, and and, and I wish him well because he really is a good guy and he works hard. And there's still plenty in the tank from a stuff perspective for him to be an effective big league reliever. We just needed something different for this club here and now. Before we dig in on Elias a little bit more, and this kind of is an, another case file, another example of relief pitching and how one year to the next, I mean, it can swing wildly, right? Did you see any signs last year for Zipchinski that would make you think going into the winter that, that something like this was a possibility? Or is this just kind of a baseball thing that one year is different from the other? I think it's the latter of the two. You know, one year is different from the other. And I think like life in general, it's it's a confidence thing. You know, I have been in positions where I had as good a stuff as I'd ever had and struggled for two months without explanation. And then sometimes the ball just doesn't find the barrel and, and you get out of it. With Zepp, that really wasn't happening. And I think it was more a, a confidence issue with him, too. What we know is that from a from a velocity perspective, from a track man pitch action perspective, all of the different metrics, including the, the, what we saw with our eyes physically, all pointed toward better results than he was getting. But at some point, the results do matter. And, and like I said, we determined that now is a time to, to try something new. So you went out, you acquired Rowanis Elias back from the Red Sox. How has he been pitching in AAA? You know, it's, he's been a little bit up and down, but he has shown us the stuff that both while he was in Pawtucket prior to, you know, being reacquired by by us, the Mariners, and what he's done for us as a starter, as we've stretched him out, you know, the first couple outings were excellent, then he went a little bit up and down, and he's shown us high velocity, he's been up to 96 miles an hour, uh, he's been pitching at 92, 94 most days, his changeup has been pretty consistent, breaking ball a little bit more of the, the inconsistent variety which is ordinarily the better of his two uh, secondary pitches. So, you know, we're encouraged by where he was. He took a no-hitter into the seventh inning in his last outing. And and uh, this is an opportunity to add somebody who can be both a second left-hand pitcher down in the pen alongside James Pazos, as well as someone who can give us length and perhaps cushion the, the bad game, so to speak, when the starter doesn't get as deep and can take us over a bridge or can come in when you're down by two and really take some of the load off guys like Jason Bradford and, and Dan Altavilla who've been having to carry those innings. There are some pitchers that it seems like a general manager would want no part in transitioning them to a different role, right, from a starter to a reliever. In Rowanis's case, is this something that you feel very confident that he'll be just fine going into the bullpen, although he's been primarily, of course, a starter in his career? I feel like he will, and if no other reason than just because that's what he was doing at the start of this season in Pawtucket, and he was doing it exceptionally well. We brought him here with the intent of stretching him out as a starter, uh, knowing that we would need to tap into pitcher's number you know, 6 to 13 or whatever it's going to be over the course of a season. We feel pretty comfortable with Christian Bergman, with Rob Whalen, with Ariel Miranda, and felt like now was the time to take a crack with Rowanis to, to put him in the bullpen, see if we get that explosive velocity like he was showing early in his starts here when he was ramping up from two to three innings. 
that inevitably over a six or seven inning outing is going to flatten out and you're going to get lower velocity numbers. His fastball is not a, a wild mover, but it has some explosive velocity burst at the end when he's throwing in the mid-90s. And, and we'll see if that's something that we achieve by putting him in the pen. When Elias first came to the Mariners, his English was okay. It was pretty good. And he was certainly working on it. And the first sentence I remember hearing Rowanis Elias ever say in English was, I love my curveball. <laughs> and we saw it we all love this curveball it's fantastic so it's surprising to hear you say that it's been a little inconsistent but i'd have to imagine that that will uh, become uh, more normal over the course of time i, I think it will i i look forward to chatting with him and i'm asking him <laughs> how much he loves his curveball. How, how do you feel about your curveball Ronis? but I, I think part of that you know one of the challenges of pitching in the pacific coast league uh, which has been part of the baseball landscape for well over a century the, the the PCL is notoriously difficult on curveballs. You know, it, a lot of the ballparks you pitch in, whether it's Las Vegas, which is frankly where, where Rowanis just took a no-hitter into the seventh, it's Albuquerque, it's Colorado Springs, you get into those environments and creating spin on the breaking ball is really tough. So you may have to torque it more at the higher altitude spots like those and as a result when you get back down to sea level or in some cases below now you're over torquing your breaking ball and you're caught in between and that's a difficult place to be so I would take it more with a grain of salt that that's been an inconsistent pitch for him my guess is that it's going to it's going to show up just the way it's always shown up once we put him in an environment that is maybe more conducive to to that pitch we look forward to seeing Ronis once again in a Mariners uniform we mentioned this is the uh, Nelson Cruz episode, episode 23. My goodness, Jerry, it is nice to see Nelson Cruz looking very healthy and, uh, frankly, pretty spry on the base pads the other night. A little bit of a hustle double. That was a close call, I think, for everyone involved. Uh, but three straight multi-hit games. You look at his numbers now, three homers his last six times out. Uh, what are you seeing, and certainly what are you liking from Nelson Cruz? Uh, first, I, we're seeing from Nelly a – what looks to be normal Nelson Cruz. He's able to load his swing again on his back leg. He has had so many different bumps and bruises and injuries over the course of these first two months. And, and it's hard to watch when, when you know the quality of a player and he's not able to do those things. And he just physically wasn't able, and he kept gaming his way through it, so to speak. But what we're seeing now is the lift back in his swing because he can sit on his backside a little more. He had gotten very rotational in his swing, if to get a little bit technical, because he couldn't really get into his legs. And as a result, he was making his 115-mile-an-hour you know, exit velocity contact, but it was mostly down. It was mostly ground balls, low-line drives. And here over these last two or three days, we've seen Nelly really start to add that lift back in his swing. And you could see it coming four or five days ago where he was starting to get his, his launch angle back. And, and it's been really refreshing these last couple of days because when he is normal Nelson Cruz in the middle of our lineup, everybody else becomes a bigger threat. And, and that's been part of the reason why over these last couple of days our offense is, is maybe starting to roll a little bit like they were in April and early May. I don't want to sidetrack too much Mariners talk, but I did have a chance to talk to Joey Gallo about Nelson Cruz the other day. And you're talking about two guys, obviously, with elite-level power. And I was curious what Joey thought about watching Nelson Cruz. And one thing that he said to me that is a very obvious point, but I guess I hadn't thought of it, especially when you compare those two guys and kind of their setup and their approach before each pitch. I mean, Gallo, as you know, 
has everything moving, right? I mean, the hip, the hip thing he's got going on, I mean, that in and of itself would make you sweat how much work he puts into it. <laughs> this is like a salsa. It yeah. is. It's exactly what it is. Uh, but he said when he watches Nelson Cruz, he's taken by how clean his swing is. And when I asked him what exactly he meant by that, he said that there's just nothing's moving. And obviously, for a guy who hits 450-foot home runs like Nelson Cruz does, he has virtually no leg kick whatsoever. And in today's leg kick era, I mean, you just don't see guys with his power with what appears to be minimal effort. When you look for hitters, and, and, and it's funny, we're going through our draft meetings right now in preparation for next week's June draft. When you look for hitters, you're looking for guys who stay quiet, who are able to kind of center their, their body weight through their sp- through their swing, and then swing with with what is a clean path to the ball without getting too long, stay direct, barrel to ball. Nelson Cruz does it cleanly, almost like. And if I, I'm going to flash back to a hitter who I faced a lot of moons ago, is Paul Molitor. Paul Molitor, no movement. There was the ball, the the barrel to ball skill was so direct and so clean that it was impossible to pitch to him when he was seeing the ball well. Nelly's that way, but Nelly adds to it top of the scale power. And that's an unusual thing. It takes a lot of body strength to do that without generating some type of sway, some momentum in your swing, more like a Joey Gallo. Nelly does it almost from, from the stop to go. And he goes stop to go and then hits balls 125 miles an hour off of the facades in, in the outfield, which is phenomenal. I heard that Joey Gallo was a pretty big Chipotle eater. Like, and by pretty big, I mean like literally every day. You want to know his order? I... He's a bull, man. Double chicken, double rice, hot sauce, guac, corn salsa, all that. But here's the kicker. Two bowls. Two. Wow. Double chicken, double rice, everything on top, twice over. What do like you call every that? every day. I, I, I don't know. I call it the cul-de-sac. I call that. <laughs> there's, there's, we're on a family channel, so I'll keep it keep it tight. But I, I would call that future poop. <laughs> you know, when I was talking to Gallo about Cruz, we were also talking about his Little League days. He was Little League teammates with Bryce Harper, both Las Vegas guys. One was eight. He was eight. Harper was nine. And it did make me think, especially with the draft coming up, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, What's the youngest that you have ever scouted a player or heard of a player being scouted? Because it's incredible to think that those two guys were on the same Little League team. Well, I, I've scouted my son since birth. Uh, it, it more, I guess, more realistically, when we go down to the Dominican Republic, the first time we're really getting a look at, at kids, they're 15, 14 and a half, 15 years old when we're, when we're watching them take off. Sometimes, and I'm, I'm going to flash back to maybe Justin Upton, when, when you get the, the prodigies, the, the young up-and-coming player, particularly those who are playing with an older brother who, who excels, and you're out at the area code games, you're in Southern Cal, you're at Long Beach State, and you're seeing a, just a ton of, of high school talent run across your eyes. Oftentimes on those teams, you're seeing freshmen, you know, freshmen, sophomores. These kids are 14, 15 years old, and they are oftentimes the ones that grab your attention because you're, you're drawn naturally to the younger player who performs very well. So I would say that's about the youngest I can remember really taking note of a player outside of watching the Little League World Series and saying, sure. wow, see you in a couple of years, buddy. <laughs> Well, it really struck me. I found it incredible. And uh, obviously, too, Harper is an MVP. Gallo's one of the scariest power hitters in the game. And on the same little team, league team is incredible. 
Well, we, we mentioned we would be talking about Wade LeBlanc. And, Jerry, Wade LeBlanc last night put the finishing touches on truly one of the best five starts in the American League of any starting pitcher in the month of May and one of the best month of Mays of any starting pitcher in Mariners history. It's been absolutely incredible what he's been able to do. He's really been a shot in the arm. And, that, you know, I was sharing with Colin while we were waiting for you to fight your way through Seattle traffic. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I, thought I, I that, deserve that. that. <laughs> we, I, I was chatting it up with Colin, and we were talking about Wade LeBlanc. And, and I think this is an interesting factoid. Over the course of his last 205 innings pitched in the big leagues, Wade LeBlanc has gone 11-3 and with a 3.78 ERA, 7.1 strikeouts per nine with 1.6 walks per nine, and an ERA plus by baseball reference metrics of about 109, which means he's pretty good. And, and, he's, and he's been doing this for a while, and nobody really notices because he flies under the radar at 86 miles an hour. And he does it with a cutter and a changeup and guile and command. And really, the, to use a, a, an old kind of baseball term, stick to he, he sticks in there and just fights him. And he wiggles around and he moves the ball in and out. He moves it up and down. He is not afraid to try to jam up a right-hand hitter with a cutter. And he knows who he is. He's not trying to be more than that. And he doesn't beat himself by putting players or hitters on base for free. We have referenced briefly on this podcast the Wade LeBlanc Award, which us in Mariners Radio Land, in verbal words only, not in hard copy or hard form, present an award to a Mariners pitcher who comes in and helps to save, salvage, buoy, whatever, the Mariners season. And the original recipient of the Wade LeBlanc Award was... Wade LeBlanc. Exactly. His first time through. Uh, last year, we have decided to uh, give it to Rosmo Ramirez because, after all, he came from nowhere. He helped stabilize the rotation. Uh, like something like 11 starts and an ERA under four. He was terrific. I don't have to tell you. So LeBlanc's the first ever winner, Rosmo last year. And I'll tell you who the front runner is this year. Wade LeBlanc. Wade LeBlanc again. Now, we finally worked up the courage to approach Wade and tell him about his own award. We were optimistic that he would take this in stride and see it as a very great thing, but you never know. And I'll be honest, Wade kind of lit up when we told him about the Wade LeBlanc Award. And we decided that we have to actually come up with a certificate or something. And then I mentioned that it would be nice to have a trophy, but we're trying to raise some funds for it. And Wade said he would chip in and pay for it, which I then thanked him for and then decided that he should have to pay for your own trophy. (laughs) And our original thought of the actual like gold plastic figure on top of the trophy was an old school lefty delivery. It has to be a left-hander. But now we kind of think it needs to be more like palms up emoji with a baseball in one hand. Like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here I am, just just throwing strikes and saving the day. Maybe the smirk, you know, corner of the mouth up. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, exactly. But he was all over it. Uh, he very much wants to have a uh, some t- type of tangible. Wade LeBlanc Award, so we're working on it. We think it's going to be terrific. I, I would, you know, I don't want to force myself into this, but I would love to be a part of, of coming up with something creative. And the first two-time winner of the Wade LeBlanc Award being Wade LeBlanc, it's, I mean, it you says all you it. can say about the, the award itself. We, now that you mentioned that you'd like to be a part of this, we were thinking that a on-field ceremony would be nice. And, of course, you could wear the sport coat. There's, 
why would I not wear this <laughs> I, I actually have a new one to break out for. No, I don't I'm want holding that it. one. No, yes, I don't want I'm that holding one. it. You will, you will enjoy it. Okay. You will enjoy it. Uh, we could roll out red carpet, perhaps flyovers for, for the Wade LeBlanc Award presentation. I like where you're and, going. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, in, in all seriousness, one of the things that this really speaks to is how underappreciated Wade truly is, that he would he would be the the, the award recipient in 2016, that we would cite this as a season-saving moment in 2016 when Wade comes up and, you know, kind of picks the team up. Saves a day. And then two years later, here he comes again, <laughs> and he's doing it and more, and, and, and still we, we view it as mildly surprising. And, right. Which is why, and I brought it to the attention of the people in our baseball group, like what he's done over the course of his last 205 innings. It's pretty phenomenal. And, and, I, and I all do credit to Wade uh, where this organization has seen the, the most magnificent transformation of a, of a kind of mid-80s pitcher in his late 20s, early 30s turning into a front-of-the-rotation guy. And certainly for the month of May this year, Wade LeBlanc has been every bit of that. I'll keep you posted on the award, how you can participate. And if you ever want, I, I'd be into matching sport coats, 38 regular right here. If you want to dig in there, expensive. Martino's will cover it. <laughs> It'll be fine. Hey, let's talk, let's talk some run differential, Jerry, because it's pretty striking. The Mariners, as you've referenced, are a game in back of the division-leading Houston Astros. They are leading the universe right now, a run differential of 112. And yet the Mariners are just a game behind them. What do you make of run differential, and especially in this case since it involves your team? I think it kind of represents how this team has played. We're kind of the little the little bulldog that that hangs on and keeps biting at your your ankles and, and won't let you get away. But I think in this particular case, the, the Astros' dominance is very clearly linked to the fact that they may have the best pitching staff in recent memory, at least in in this generation of, of baseball. Uh, that's the way they're performing through two months. They've got a phenomenal rotation, and, and they've just shut people down. So it's easy to, to create run differential when your pitching staff is just not giving it up at all. And, you know, alternatively, while our pitching has been outstanding, and from an offensive perspective, we've been on par with the Astros and many of the other teams in the, in the American League. We've done it without half our lineup almost the entire two-month stretch that we've played so far. So oftentimes we're getting to the point where we are putting people on base, we're creating run scoring opportunities, and then we're falling short and and pushing ourselves into very close games because for a lot of of April and May, we were playing with a bottom of the order that was less productive due to, to injuries that we couldn't control. So I give our team a ton of credit. People will cite us as being in a position of, of good fortune or we've been lucky to win as many games as we've, we've won. I consider it a phenomenal achievement that we won in spite of the fact that, that for most of the season to date, our last three or four hitters have, have often been sub-in players for our regulars who were down. I, the Astros having the big run differential, that's not going to change because their pitching is so good. And you know, we as a as a team who now is plus twelve or thirteen, we, we tend to we tend to lean more heavily on the C the Z number. You know, our control the zone number is right now, I think, the twelfth best number in Mariners history. And we still have you know, two-thirds of a season to play. So we are we are controlling the zone in a different way. We are controlling our own destiny in a different way. 
And if you think about it, the the return of our healthy lineup, a, a real boost from our pitching staff in these first two months, and the fact that I don't think the run differential is as critical for a team that is generally built or whose whose heart and soul is 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 in that bullpen. And I think that's where this team lines up going forward is that with Diaz, with Nicasio, with with Alex Colome and Vincent and Altavilla and Pazos, etc., we we're strong in that bullpen and we have we have the ability to pull some one-run wins out of thin air. And that's kind of what's happened. So, you know, luck be damned, we're we're doing we're, we're doing what this team was intended to do and I and I would be surprised if we don't continue to play a lot of really close games. You referenced the C the Z number and you've talked about it in previous episodes in case people didn't hear that. Can you explain exactly what that number is? Again? You know, that's our baseball plus minus. You know, so for those hockey fans, there's you're in the plus you're good, you're you're in the minus it's not so good. We have created, uh, or I shouldn't say we, uh, we have borrowed a number that I have carried through the years since working with the Red Sox back in the early 2000s. And we, we used it in Arizona. We used it, you know, as I've moved through my career, uh, picking up a lot of current Mariner personnel along the way and, and something we all subscribe to. So we take effectively the good things, our hitters drawing walks and our pitchers striking people out uh, are, are, are good things. We, we appreciate it when our pitchers don't walk people and and when our hitters don't strike out so although right now on the offensive side we're not a big walking team we also don't strike out a ton so we control the strike zone in a little different way there on the pitching side we actually do strike them out we're I think fifth in the league in strikeout rate, and we don't walk them very often unless we're playing the Texas Rangers the day before yesterday. <laughs> I mean, two games fan. <laughs> yeah, uh, so we we generally throw strikes. So so we are built to control the strike zone and to give our club a chance in these close games, and I think we're doing that. So you know, as a simple equation, if you if you subtract the the bad from the good, and you are walking and striking them out more than you are walking them, and they are striking you out it turns into a positive number right now we're at about a positive 70 75 which puts us in the top three or four in the league and it it already is among the top dozen seasons in Mariners history and you know we look at it in an aggregate we're not looking at it game by game game by game the the metric by itself doesn't teach you or 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 merit a win or a loss but in aggregate, over the long season, it proves out that the teams that dominate in that area typically wind up in the postseason. Well, that's great stuff. I think uh, that is that's really an, an almost a I want to say a more telling statistic than run differential because they're both different. But it's something kind of below the level that I think people people who dig run differential would get that. And kind of wrapping it up on run differential, Jerry. When we were talking about it on the air the other day, the best thing I could come up with was simply to say. The, one of the biggest mistakes that us as baseball fans get into is trying to decide that there's one stat that will tell the end-all, be-all. And people will look at the Mariners' run differential compared to the Astros, and they'll just make a snap judgment on both teams simply on that. And I don't think there's a single statistic that you can do that with, including run differential. No, there's really only one. And it's wins. <laughs> I, but I, I think the, the reality is that, that in order for all of us in trying to prognosticate, we're trying to predict where you're mm-hmm. going to wind up or where you might need help, in different areas that you could goose. We're looking at all of those, there's those small 
pockets and we're looking through a statistical lens to try to determine ways we can get better. But at the end of the day, the, the wins are banked. You know, they are in the, they're in the bank. We're not worried about them. We're worried about the one that comes next. So we're going to continue to try to, to, to predict. But we feel that with a healthy lineup, with a bullpen that's set up like ours and a rotation that's throwing as well as ours, our run differential over these next two-thirds of the season should wind up in a better position than we just came from. And we were fortunate enough that we were able to pull out a number of one-run victories, largely due to the quality of our pitching. Let's talk Major League Draft a little bit, Jerry. It's just around the corner, and these are busy times for you, busy times for your guys as well. Can you sum up for us kind of what has been the overall mindset approach, what have you, so far for the Mariners approaching the draft? I think we're, we're currently in, we're in the middle of our, our national meetings. Scott Hunter and Tom Allison, our, our crew is all in here. We're, we're debating players. In these meetings, I am far more uh, a listener than a than a speaker. I've not seen many, if if any, of the players at times. And you know, at, when, once we get outside the first round, I, I am a a limited contributor outside of just thinking through logically and laying out philosophy with Scott and Tommy. And we're pretty excited about where we're at with this draft. I think the the high school pool, the you know, the prep class is pretty interesting. There are always interesting pitchers in the prep class, but this group has a lot of really athletic outfielders, some middle-of-the-field players that really intrigue. And that seems to me the highlight of this class. We're picking 14th. We don't pick again till 54th. You know, philosophically, you take the best player available to you. Uh, I don't know who that's going to be. We have some ideas as to who it might be. Uh, this year probably lines up for us to be a little bit more geared toward adding athletes where we can. And we're, we're focused on making our system more athletic, just like we've done, I think, with our major league team. And uh, this is the, this is the final weekend as we head into it. We've got our eyes on a, on a, a couple of young lasses, or lads that, that have a chance to, to – push us in the right direction and I'm really thrilled with the process as as we have evolved over these last three years now together and what we're starting to do how we're identifying players and the way we're marrying our our metrics our our track man information our scouting eye and just good baseball acumen some good news it looks like on Kyle Lewis recently by the way it looks like he's really started to find a pretty good stroke for himself Really has, you know, especially over these last ten games. Uh, almost every night, we're we're looking. He's he's pounding the ball. We're we're seeing hundred mile an hour exit velocities. He's he's doing all the right things, and and he appears healthy. Similarly with Evan White, you know, since the middle of April, Evan White is raking in the in the Cal League to the tune of uh, something in the neighborhood of three twenty three thirty with close to a four hundred on base, and and really starting to strike the ball well. So there's that's been a positive development at the top of our prospect food chain for sure. When you mention that once it gets past the first round, you're more hands-off, I'd have to imagine because of you and the 29 other men who do your job, that that's true for every general manager, is it not? It is and it's not. You know, And I can say in the time that I have done the job that I'm doing now, I've, there are years where I've been more involved in the draft. And, and the more I think about it, I got great advice from a former general manager who at one point resigned his position and went back into the scouting world. And, and I asked him, you know, what prompted it? And, and he told me that through the years, he tended to become a little bit too involved in the draft. And if you get too involved in the draft after the players at the top of the draft, uh, you're, you're starting to drive decisions in the room based on players you haven't seen 
you will make mistakes, that you have to trust the people that are paid to do these jobs and that see the players up close and personal. So my job, as, as it relates to the draft, is to set up a philosophy in collaboration with Scott Hunter and Tom Allison to make sure that we're all on the same page and that we're looking for a certain type of player over another. And philosophically, in the top 100 picks, we are all geared toward the most athletic, best, most complete upside player we can get. Uh, and that's going to be at the judgment of our scouts in conjunction with our, our data systems. Once we get past the third round, we're a little bit more geared toward finding the, the, the performers, the college guys who can come in and move faster through a system because history tells you that's the better bet once you get there. And if a certain prep class like the one we're in right now gives you the opportunity to find that kind of athletic upside outside the first 100 picks, don't be stupid. Take it. Then are we, with all that being said, are we too harsh on general managers when and of course yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where you're going with Next this, but question. yeah, for sure. I mean, how many times do we hear people in the media or fans or anyone in between saying, "Oh well, look at the, this general manager and the draft pick bus he's had." I mean, based on what you just said, it's not as if the majority of general managers have their fingerprints all over the whatever past the first round draft picks there are. I mean, it seems like. You kind of have, it's kind of like being a parent, right? You raise your kids, you hope you set up the right process for them, and then you kind of let them out into the wild and you hope that they make right decisions. I think there's a degree of that that's, that's spot on, but you are responsible for, for the people that are, that are operating with alongside you that are making those decisions. I am ultimately responsible for setting up philosophically what we're trying to do. Uh, we definitely take into consideration every risk and potential upside before we make a decision. And that process is something that I'm directly linked to and every conversation and every discussion. And ultimately, before the name is called, there's, there is a level of approval that occurs. But my general thought is, you are the guys we hired. This is what we want to do. As long as we're staying within these parameters, let's go. And, and we've, we've gotten good players as a result of that, whether it's Evan White, it's Kyle Lewis, it's Sam Carlson, and we think we're going to get some more in a couple of days. Are you ready for our second installment of Stump JD? Th- oh my God! Please, yes. Now you, you I basically aced. I it. can't wait. You basically aced it last time. It was and you gave me like you went right to to level ten on the difficulty. I don't know. I thought I thought that, I thought you. I actually thought our last episodes would be right in your wheelhouse. I thought you'd be all over it, and you were. So that one was much more baseball referency indexy. Okay, this is a very simple, straightforward question. Can you tell me the last? American League switch hitter to win league MVP. American League switch hitter to win the league MVP. Vita Blue. See, I knew, I knew, I didn't, I knew that it would either be this is an instantaneous win, or it was just uh, five minutes later. I've got no clue. There would be no in between. It was a softball. <laughs> yeah, that gets basically everyone because no one ever considers that a pitcher would be a switch hitter. But yes, the 1971 American League MVP was starting pitcher Vita Blue. Congratulations. You're two for two. True Blue. Vita True Blue. All right. Well, that was awful. Um, <laughs> there was no drama involved there. Uh, we'll, I will try harder our third time through. That's it. You, you had me the last time. This was, uh, there's, on, the, on the quirky, direct questions, 
There, there are things that I've that, that I've tormented myself through for years. Like the, the 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 stupid knowledge that's standing up in the attic that has nowhere to go until there's a cocktail <laughs> that's party. That's why we do a podcast. That's, that's what this is all about. Okay. Well, let's get on to some listener questions uh, that you will have more to talk about than our trivia question today. Uh, remember, you can always email the podcast at thewheelhouse at mariners.com. This is a Brittany in Seattle. She wants to know, you have uh, some good knowledge on this, I'm sure. Relief pitchers Jerry spend many hours hanging out of the bullpen, as you are well aware, with the same people over and over. Outside of baseball skills, are there personality characteristics that you look for in a reliever? Is that... A thing that you would go for? There's, it's very hard. Sometimes before you acquire a player, unless they've had a long track record in the major leagues, you don't really know a lot about them personality-wise. You can find out about their makeup, their character, whether they work hard or they don't. But the quirks that are involved once you get locked in a cage with the same guys night after night, they're, they're pretty funny. I, I spent most of my adult life sitting in bullpens, and <laughs> I have, I've, come up, I've come to the conclusion that the relievers are the weirdest guys on the team, uh, almost by law. They're, they're segregated on an island for <laughs> you know, inning after they're inning. They're in Alcatraz in right. ballpark. And then they have to swim through the channel of sharks <laughs> to get back to the mainland in order to, to pitch. But – uh, usually the, the, the guys that are more outgoing, that are a little, that, that have a good sense of humor are able to, to think in shorter terms. The, the uber intense reliever is, is a nuclear meltdown waiting to happen because inevitably you're going to have bad days. You're going to give up runs. And if you put a lot of stress on yourself without being able to just shut it off and, and move on quickly, the, the best trait you can have as a reliever, I guess the two best traits you can have, are short memory and sense of humor. Uh, it, it truly is because it, um, if you take yourself too seriously sitting down there, it is a very difficult job. You've got to be able to take it with a grain of salt. I'm thinking immediately of Ken Giles punching himself in the face. Seemingly intense, uh, you know, but there, I think the you know the guys we had a I had a teammate in Colorado who to me was one of the the great teammates I ever had. His name was Curtis Laskanik, and pitched in the big leagues for about a dozen years. He was actually my first roommate in pro ball with the Cleveland Indians. And this just a little quick side story, uh, Brittany may enjoy uh, it could give you a little bit of insight into the reliever mentality. Uh, Curtis and I met when we were 21 years old. I, I walked into the the best Western Aztec Inn in Tucson, Arizona, for my very first spring that training. That sounds terrible. It, it was just as it sounds. <laughs> and uh, and I walked in, and there was a there was a bag on the on the bed next to me. You know, two beds in a room, and you've got a roommate. And and uh, Curtis had just signed out of LSU, and I'd never met him before. And and uh, the bag was on the bed, and I thought, don't know who my roommate is, but he clearly he's here. And I dropped my bag on the bed, and I went into to the bathroom. And as I opened the door, there was Curtis in a full-blown bubble bath <laughs> with, with his leg hanging out over the edge, shaving his leg. Now, this, this is 1989, and you know that really wasn't a thing then. And I, I walked into the bathroom, and I said, whoa. And, and he immediately popped up out of the tub. Nothing but you said, suds. You said, whoa, again? Yeah, and, I, and, and stuck out his hand, and he said, hey, buddy, Curtis Laskanik. And I thought, this guy's a kook. <laughs> and I, and I, it wound up being prophetic. You know, we spent many of the next, you know, 12 or 15 years together. He's, just, he's a great friend. And he was one of the quirkiest, funniest teammates you could ever have. And they are able to keep the rest of the team loose and, and lessen the intensity around everybody else. 
This is a good one from Robbie in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Got a listener there. Episode 22, our last episode, uh, featured a segment that highlighted members of the front office and their contributions for the span Colomay acquisition, which was a terrific story, Jerry. We're glad you shared it. Uh, Robbie's biggest dream is to work in a major league front office, and uh, nothing gets him more excited than very intelligent, in-depth baseball talk. Then you've come to the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder he's a subscriber. Uh, he wants to know, what's the best route to take to get hired in a, for a baseball ops department for a major league team like the Mariners? Well, first to put together a resume that makes sense and stress what your strengths are, whether it is statistical, it is it is more kind of baseball experiences on field or even in, in more of a managerial uh, and that could be anything from from managing the, the the college baseball group to managing information for the sports information department, but something that identifies some type of baseball or statistical connection that that'll at least open an eye. And then I would say get your resume in front of thirty teams as as soon as you can and apply for whatever jobs are available in that organization in any other department. It could be marketing, it could be ticketing. Get yourself in the front door. Because once you've been exposed to, to an organization, and, and you could be working in any other area of the, the, the group, and you sit down at lunch, you get to know the people in baseball operations, you, you've shown a skill set that might appeal in what we're trying to, to add, uh, that might be your best avenue because direct access to major league front offices, they are, these are wildly competitive positions there we'll get thousands of resumes and 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 it's hard sometimes to differentiate one between another but if you already work in the organization and you have those skills you have a step up on whoever comes next how often do you or people that work for you receive emails actual mail which i know is kind of a funny thing to say but like real life honest to goodness mail from people like robbie all over the country who are sending their material to all 30 teams and are just saying hey I'm a guy. I love this. This is my passion. Do you have a spot for me? Is that something that happens regularly? Every single day. Uh, every single day. And and it's not just me, but it's all of the members of our baseball ops team. And we'll pool the information. You know, we, we have a resumes file where we're keeping everything up on tap, so to speak, until we get into the hiring season. And each year we're going to hire two interns. And we'll hire two interns. They're paid internships where we, and it might be one in baseball operations, one in scouting, or one in player development, one in scouting. And then at the end of that one-year internship, we'll determine whether it's a full-time job for that person or whether to go back into the pool. And some of the people that we have here working with us in, with, in the Mariners group, all they came through our intern programs. And, and I think that by itself validates the quality of the program and the fact that it is it's an on-ramp to a career in baseball well jerry as we wrap things up some good news for android users you can now subscribe to the wheelhouse on stitcher will also be on google play and spotify very shortly this is all that colin o'keefe does all day long is trying to figure this stuff out uh to wrap it up around the horn uh this homestand will end with uh Nelson Cruz Pop Collectible Night. That's tomorrow. Little League Day on Sunday. Bat and ball set for the young Mariners fans. And then the Mariners are back home for a seven-game homestand. The Angels and the Red Sox beginning June 11th. The 11th and 12th Mariners value games presented by BECU. And it's going to be, that Red Sox series, Jerry, is going to be terrific uh, for what happens on the field, off the field as well. Friday the 15th is our first fireworks night of the summer. And then Sunday the 17th, of course, Father's Day. Mariners, Mariners barbecue glove for the first 10,000 dads. 
So get your tickets now. That Red Sox series is going to be a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And, and I can say just the, the month of June in, in general, I don't suspect we're going to be playing too many lopsided games. <laughs> that we, our competition in June takes a decided turn north. And, and those are the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Angels, the Astros. These are the best teams in the league. And, and if we want to play along with them, we've got to find a way to hang and beat them. Jerry, congratulations on uh, acing Stump JD for the second week in a row. I'll be working much harder uh, for our third installment of Stump JD, and this has been a fun podcast as always. Thank you for the time. I know you're incredibly busy. Ah, I'm glad to do it always. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.